0: Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I may make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I might find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same but also approve those who practice them. this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. as we finished up Peter's second letter last letter to the church, he mentioned the Apostle Paul and he said, As in all his letters, there is uh, a certain amount of uh, predictability in the Apostle Paul, if you are familiar with his writings. There are things you're going to find, especially as you enter into his letters. There's a, a set format that we're used to seeing. Paul begins by writing and defining a few things. He defines what we should expect this letter to give us. That is in verse seven, where he writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that may sound to you like just a superscription, and because Paul has tended to write like this, It became a superscription that you would find in Christian correspondence and even today, but before Paul's letters, that wasn't really exactly the way people wrote letters. We have a number of ancient letters from ancient times, and uh, they, they kind of follow the pattern that Paul uses, but when you get to this point, there's nothing like his grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. It's always like, uh, I'm praying for you to Poseidon that you will have blessing, uh, or it's, I really hope the gods will protect you, or some sort of reference to divinity, but it's not exactly the way Paul puts it. Paul puts this in a new way, and then after that, the church kind of incorporates it, and it even gets into the liturgy. But it seems to be that Paul is saying, I have sent you a letter, I have sent you a written document, but I'm an apostle. What is coming from me is not from me. I'm an apostle. An apostle speaks for somebody else. This is from God the Father, and it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this writing, in these words that you're about to receive, from them, not from me, but from them, you will receive two very important things. You will receive grace, and you will receive peace. It's well been pointed out that... Those two words were the common blessing that people would give to one another as they met on the street. If you were Jewish and you met somebody, you would bid them peace. That was the way you you blessed somebody in the marketplace. If you were Greek, you would bid them grace. Well, the reason why these things are bid the way they are is because that's what human beings desperately long for. Grace is to be received favorably, even though you don't really deserve it. Grace is when somebody likes you, even though there's no reason for them to. And the average human being does not feel like they're in grace, and that's because they're not. There is a sense of foreboding doom over everybody, and everybody can feel it. Paul references that in verse 18 when he says, Now, you know the wrath of God is revealed against all humanity, which has been surpassing, has been suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, The average human being doesn't feel like they're in grace. They're not. Paul says, in these words that have come from God the Father— From God the Son, grace is to be had. And of course the word peace, uh, very straightforward, it's peace with my neighbor, it's peace with God, it's peace with my own heart, that's what the Jews are bidding one another, and again, the reason why it's used in bidding the way it is, is the average human being does not have that. The average human being is described by Paul in another letter in the the book of Titus, where he says, remember, we were all at one time hateful and we hated one another. Uh, That really is kind of the human condition. Uh, We're not at peace with each other. We're not at peace with God. We're not at peace even with our own heart. So what we really, really long for is we long for peace and we long for grace And the Apostle defines what you're about to hear if you take it to heart, if you really have this message sink in, well, grace and peace can be had from God the Father and God the Son. Paul defines his audience in all his letters. Here, uh, it's to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. There is some marvelous kindness in those words. Um, He is a representative of the God of Israel, and up to this point, there has not been a whole lot of reason to believe, given the relationship between Israelite and Roman, that the God of Israel would love a Roman or somebody outside of Israel because the people of God... Certainly had not reflected that very well, but the scriptures said otherwise, and the apostle of Christ now says, I'm writing to a certain group of people, it is specifically those that God does indeed love. God has a heart of love for this group of people. They are those who are called to be saints. You hear a echo of that beloved doctrine that we hold so dear election, right here at the beginning of the letter, you have been called, you who are receiving this letter. Not everyone in Rome at this time is going to receive these words, and Paul is not writing to everybody in Rome, but he is writing to a select group of people whom he can confidently say, God loves you and God has called you into fellowship with himself. A very, very blessed group of people. It is the Roman church. He is writing a letter to God's people in Rome. He defines them briefly. And then, of course, what you also expect from Paul is that he will define himself. Why does he have the authority to write this letter? Uh, Why is this letter the word of God and not just from Bill? You know, how does he get away with writing this? Well, he defines himself in verse 1. I am Paul a bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. So there again is kind of an echo of God's sovereign call, his his electing of people. You have been called to him. I've been called to him. And he has called me into apostleship. um, And I'm a bondservant. At least that's what the New King James translates it as. I'm not sure what other translations translate it as, but... A very good translation, which would be very accurate, would be slave. There's a reason why it gets softened in the New King James. It's because we really have an attitude about slavery. We consider slavery as Americans to be the worst of all sins. How could you possibly see slavery in a positive light? Yada, yada, yada. You know you know the, the, the rigmarole. But that doesn't permeate the scriptures. Uh, The scriptures don't present slavery as the worst of all possible sins. And in fact, Paul begins his letter saying, now I am a slave and I'm happily a slave. I have a good master. I live in a household that I am very pleased to announce I'm a slave of. I am a slave of Jesus, who is the Christ. God has sent the promised prophet, priest, and king. We have waited for the Christ for 4,000 years. And the good news is he's here. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That's the way it reads in the Greek. He is the Christ. And I'm a slave of him. And I want you to know I'm very happy to be a slave of him. He has made me an apostle. He has made me a mouthpiece for himself. Um, And not only that, but Paul adds an interesting little tidbit that he doesn't add elsewhere. I am an apostle, a mouthpiece of Christ, set apart to the gospel of God. Now, a mouthpiece is sent from someone to declare a message. It could be really any message that that someone wanted to declare. But Paul says... My apostleship is dedicated to one thing. I am set apart to that one thing. It is not about anything else. What I am about is God has chosen me to be a slave of Christ for the sake of the good news, the evangel. Um, This is good news. God has something to tell the world that is very, very positive, something that is wonderful to hear. And he has taken me and made me an apostle and said, this is what you are going to be about. And it really is about the gospel. The ministry of the apostles is about the gospel. Paul says it here, and he will say it deeper in the first seven verses as well, so that in a brief little space of time, he emphasizes the ministry of the apostleship is about the good news that is central to the Christian religion. It is not a part of the Christian religion. It is not, certainly not a tacked-on element to the Christian religion. It is the very essence of the Christian religion in a way that nothing else is. There is good news to be had. That good news is the foundation of everything else that might be in Christianity. Christianity is not actually, quote, about loving your neighbor. Christianity is not about making the world a better place. Christianity is not about growing in moral goodness, and I could continue to go on. I could continue to bring up things that in and of themselves are good and nice and beneficial, holy even, but the Christian religion is not built on those things. It is not central those things. Rather, the foundation of all true religion is this good news. Jesus Christ has sent out his apostles and all the world to declare the gospel, and it's really out of the gospel all the rest of those things will come. We have lived through 150 years of some kind of interesting developments in the Christian Church. If you were to go back 150 years ago, you would have what was called the development of the social gospel. There was a rising out of the waning faith of the Church, an emphasis that true religion was about all the things I just mentioned. It was about making the world a better place. It was about teaching men to be better people. Uh, it was about you know whatever else I mentioned. I can't remember now. But the social gospel was you made the world a better place. It wasn't about spiritual doctrines or uh, blood that saves you or any of that stuff. It was kind of this utopian, you should be a good person and make the world a better place. That went to blazes in a handbasket, and in fact, you're still living the fallout of it, why do you live in a leftist, liberal environment? Well, the real reason is the social gospel gave birth to it. The whole idea that that, that mankind could make the world a better place through his own efforts, uh, it, it, it quickly jettisoned the whole God thing, but it didn't really need it. And you got this utopian idea that we now still are strangled with. Well, in the believing church, there was a reaction to that. And they said, no, Christianity is about spirituality. It is about uh, your, your pious devotion to the Lord. It is about the gospel. They, they said that very loudly, and they meant it. But they saw it as it's only about the gospel, and nothing grows out of it. So we're going to preach the gospel and we're going to see God convert human hearts by the gospel. And that's really the whole thing. Uh, nothing grows from this. It's just kind of an inner thing. And in reality, both of these things were off base. Now, the first one, <coughs> more off base than the second. But the truth is, all those things are what make a peculiar people a different people, a a people that stand out, a kingdom of God, and the gospel will produce those things. The gospel will lead God's people to want to make a better world, to make better people, to evangelize the world, to help your neighbor. All of that the gospel will produce, but those things are not the gospel. The gospel is something totally different. And the gospel is going to be what this letter is all about. It has well been said that if the New Testament has a systematic theology, it's the book of Romans. And that's what we're going to begin. Paul is going to go through the essence of what the gospel is in a a systematic way, far more systematic than anywhere else, Uh, and it's literally going to all be about the gospel. Everything we look at is gospel or related to gospel. Why does he do that? Well, it's because he's on his way to Rome, and when he gets there, he wants something very specific out of the churchmen at Rome. He says, you know, I wanted to come to Rome. I wanted to preach the gospel there. I haven't been able to, but I'm now going to come to Rome, and when I get there... I want you to participate with me in producing fruit for the gospel. If you look at the New Testament, it is very clear that the apostles are not the only people who are supposed to be declaring the gospel. Even if you go to the uh, to to the the most cited verse about. Uh, bearing the gospel, the, the uh, Great Commission, uh, in, in the core of it, there is this element that the apostles are going to be kind of the first among equals, but the whole church is going to bear the gospel. The, the most famous way the, the Great Commission is, is written is, and this is Matthew, and Jesus came and spake to them, and that's the apostles who are gathered saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You do that in two ways. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the second one is teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, if you're going to teach the disciples to do everything that the apostles have been commanded, it includes a lot of things, but it includes this very command. I am sending you forth to evangelize the nations, teach the disciples to replicate everything I've taught you, including teaching the nations the gospel. And Paul, when he talks to churches at Rome, or he talks to churches at Philippi, emphasizes the fact, I want to bring you in for this, I want you to help me do this. Uh, A good example of that, and, and maybe a much more straightforward example, is in the beginning of his letter to the Church of Philippi. There he writes, I think, my God, upon every remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. So the apostle says to the churches when he writes to them, the gospel has been given to you. You are to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to be the first of my equals doing it, but you're going to be doing it with me. And he is writing to the Roman church saying, when I get there, I want you to be so well-versed in the gospel, you can do that. The gospel has been given to all disciples, but the truth is, uh, it's something you do grow in. It's something you grow in experiencing it. It's something you grow in knowing it, too. And that element cannot be overlooked. Paul wants them to be able to maturely share the gospel with him. And so he says, when I get there, I want you to be trained in the gospel, and this letter is going to do that. It will train you what the real gospel is so that you're able to truly share what God's good news is. Now, along the way, we're going to find out that just like in all the letters from the apostles, there is some correction that the Roman church needs. There is some um, chafing between people who grew up Jewish and they've come to Christ, but they feel like I've always been in God's covenant, and I'm actually just a little better than all these newcomers. Uh, These Gentiles who've been outside the faith, really nice to have them here, but we're really kind of the real people. And there's going to be some correction to that. But that really is kind of minor in the letter. It's, It's not the major thing at all. The major thing is to share the gospel. to to share it in such a way that you can grow in really knowing what it is, to get a handle on what God has done, this is the letter. And it may be because of that, that in Paul's introduction, and that's really what this sermon is about, it's really about verse 1 through 7, he does something that he doesn't do in any other letter. After he has defined himself as an apostle, and said, I'm set apart to the gospel, which is what the whole book is going to be about, he then summarizes the gospel in the next five verses. In the original language, the next five verses are all one sentence, but it is a summary of everything you're going to look at at length in the book. Uh, It's kind of like the, the U.S. Army's approach to communication. You tell people what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, And then, just to make sure they got it, you tell them what you told them. Well, that's kind of the way this works. In these five verses, the apostle summarizes the gospel he says he's been set apart to. And in this really brief sentence, there are some really amazing things that we learn about the gospel. It is power-packed. With, with remarkable truth concerning what the good news is. The first thing we learn about what this gospel is, is that it is, quote, about his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The good news is about a person, a human being who walked among us He was born in the Promised Land 2,000 years ago. Uh, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. The gospel is all about him. When I emphasized that true religion isn't those things, it is the gospel, now this is kind of digging deeper into that. The gospel is... Is this person Jesus is good news for you in Genesis chapter 3 6,000 years ago when you had the fall of man and the curse placed upon the world so that terrible things happen and really in chapter 3 of Genesis almost nothing positive is there at all There is nevertheless the promise in verse 3 and 15 that God would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, to undo everything he was going to do. This was a person would be born of a woman's seed, and of course women don't have seed, so this has to be a very unique person, but a person was going to come and undo everything that the devil did. Well, Paul says that good news, which really kind of has its beginning there, that good news finds its total completion in Jesus the Christ. There have been all kinds of attempts to summarize the gospel in a systematic form, and these attempts are not bad things. Uh, There's things like the Four Spiritual Laws, that was a thing back in the 80s. There, was, there there, has been things like the Roman's Road, where you kind of walk through the Book of Romans and you get certain verses that tell you things about the gospel. And all these presentations are not wrong. The gospel has a content, there is doctrinal truth connected to it, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that the good news is Jesus himself. God answers the promise he made in the garden. He sends the individual. Jesus is what the gospel is about, and the gospel is Jesus. If you possess what God gives in the Lord Jesus Christ, you possess the treasure of heaven. There is nothing greater There is nothing to look forward to beyond. In Jesus Christ is everything God is going to give, and he is himself the gospel. Second of all, uh, this gospel has been promised by the prophets. Paul says that in the prophets and in their writings, God promised to make this promise which sounds just a little redundant, but it really isn't. The The very essence of, of what it means to relate to God is covenantal. It is a relationship of promise. And in the, the garden, when God said, I'll do this, well, he made a promise. And so it was as good as done because God keeps his promises. If God makes a promise to you, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen because God is the not lying God. You can't really do that with anybody else. Somebody else might lie to you, backstab you, whatever, but when God makes a promise, the promise is good. However, for the promise to be good, God has to actually do what he promised. And so in the the, the wholeness of the Hebrew Scriptures, one prophet after another was sent from God to expand upon the promise that I'm going to send somebody to undo the devil's work, details, details, Uh, come out from various prophets. Every prophet deals with who this person's going to be. Uh, But until the person comes, the promise isn't fulfilled, even though you can count on it. And so Paul says, I want you to know true religion has been about Jesus the whole time. When you read the books of Moses, when you read Exodus and Leviticus If you don't see those books pointing you to Christ, you're reading them wrong. You're reading the wrong book. When you read the historical books about kings and political machinations and battles, if you don't see this pointing you towards Christ, you're really not getting the point of the book. If you read the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, which are going through in, in the early morning, all of this was connected to the promise, I'll send this one. Uh, It's not that this was secret. It's not that people didn't know about the promise before Christ came. It was the essence of God's religion the whole time. But the wonderful thing about the gospel as it is now is the gospel is not promised that the gospel will come. The gospel has come. The Lord Jesus has walked among us. The Lord Jesus still remains among us. Um, If if you read the book of Acts, it begins with, now I wrote the Gospel of Luke to let you know what Jesus began to do and teach, which means Jesus is doing and teaching this very minute. Uh, The prophets all said this point would come, and now it is. So this is what God has been doing all along. And specifically, the gospel has to do with two estates concerning this person. Uh, The first one is that he is the son of David, according to his flesh. When I teach my Christianity unit at EKU, uh, one of the things I like to do in talking to my Christian students is ask them, does your church do any, you know, kind of door-to-door evangelism or anything like that? And sometimes they will, that'll happen. And I ask him, you know, what do you go and you tell people? And they'll give me the gospel as they'll present it. And then I ask him, now, do you go and knock on the door and say, I've got really, really good news for you. Uh, I want you to know that Jesus of Nazareth was descended from David. This is really, really fantastic news. You have to understand, Jesus is descended from David. And my evangelical students will stare with me like deer in the headlights because when they think about the good news, they don't think about, well, this is David's son. But Paul, as he's presenting the Gospel in summary, says, the good news is about the fact this guy descended from King David. Well, why, why is that good news? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is David received the promise that of his line would come the eternal king. So the seed of the woman who had bruised the super's head has to come through his line. He will be the branch of our righteousness, he will be the one that reigns forever. Um, so if he's descended from somebody else, it doesn't work. But more than that, human beings need a king. I am as. Freedom motivated as the next guy, or maybe the next three. I have a extremely libertarian kind of bent to my to my mindset. I, I really don't like people telling me what to do. But our Lord Christ looked out over Jerusalem and he saw harried, defenseless sheep, sheep without a shepherd, sheep that were. at at any moment given to being threatened by the wolves of this life. That's how he describes mankind. And our Lord Jesus Christ is right. Before the spiritual powers and pressures of this world, you are a sheep, a sheep for the shearing. You have no natural weapons against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, you're, you're, you're a herbivore. They're the carnivore. You need the man with the sword. You need the king who will fight for his kingdom. And the gospel that is all about Jesus is that Jesus promises you to be your king, to gather you into the kingdom of David, to make you a subject of the eternal kingdom over which he will defend. He will fly his banner, he will defend you, he will guard you. It is a remarkably important part of the good news that he will be your king. And he was. He was descendant of David according to the flesh, and he was also the son of God, says Paul. So right here in this brief summary, when the gospel is considered... The nature of Christ, the two natures of Christ, what we call the hypostatic union of Christ, uh, it's right here. It's mentioned in the summary. And uh, it has to be. When our Reformed forefathers were summarizing the gospel, which is what the Heidelberg Catechism is, in Lord's Day 6, they have to spend the whole Lord's Day on this because it is very much at the heart of who Jesus is. Lord's Day 6, why must he be a true and righteous man? Answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. So to the one who breaks the law should go the punishment of the law. So if human beings break the law, then human beings have to pay for it. But one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Question 17, why must he also be true God? Answer, that by the power of his Godhead, he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath and so obtain for and restore for us righteousness and life. So consider the infinite power of the wrath of God, which a sin against an infinite God deserves, what can stand up to that what can be the immovable rock that can stop the unstoppable force well it's not you if you attempt to do that that's called hell and damnation but jesus is able to be infinitely valuable jesus is able to be infinitely strong jesus stops the infinite wrath of god because he is the infinite god and so he has to be descended from David, so it's going to be a guy. But he's also got to be God. Um, question 18. But who now is that mediator, who in one person is true God and also true and righteous man? Answer: Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is freely given to us for complete redemption and righteousness. And then it ends with how do you know this? And the answer is from the Holy Gospel which God himself first revealed in paradise, afterwards proclaimed by the holy patriarchs and prophets, and foreshadowed in the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and finally fulfilled in his well-beloved son. Sound familiar? Uh, The good news is that there was a very unique person. He was 100% God, 100% man. That's the only way we could be redeemed from the devil's work, and he's come. Now, that is a a very bodacious claim, but anyone could make it. How do we know that claim is true? Well, Paul moves on to that. He says, he was declared the Son of God by power, by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of righteousness, by the Spirit raising him from the dead. If the world could prove that Jesus of Nazareth stayed dead... You would not be able to watch TV without a documentary about how we prove Jesus is dead coming on every hour. It would be on posters. It would be in books. The world would be celebrating, we have proved that Jesus of Nazareth is dead and we've got the body. But that has not been proved ever. It was attempted to be proved by the Roman authorities. They did not prove it. It has been attempted to be proved in every era of humankind, and it's never been proven Every time people go looking for, did Jesus really rise from the dead? All the historical evidence say, this man rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead in a way that nobody else has. I mean, some people had been resuscitated. they had really been dead. They'd been revivified. But then they died again. Jesus of Nazareth is alive and alive forever. Um, You may ask how that proves that he is both uh, David's son and also divine. Well, consider this. You have a man who wanders for three and a half years in the promised land, who says some remarkably blasphemous things, if they're not true. He says, I am the Father and perfectly one. I say, uh, before Abraham was, I am, which means I claim divinity. I call myself the Son of God. This is not your typical wandering preacher kind of stuff. This is is the most blasphemous, God-insulting material if it isn't true. But now if it is true, it's a totally different case. But this guy who's been saying it dies. Now, who can raise the dead? Well, there's only one. There's the one who gives life in the first place. He can raise the dead. He raises this man who has made all these claims. Would God raise to life evermore Jesus of Nazareth if all that stuff he was saying was not true? The holy, righteous God of the Bible would never, ever do that. But he blesses Jesus of Nazareth, raises him from the dead and in so doing validates everything the man has said. And so Paul is being very pragmatic here. How can you tell this is the one that was sent to undo the devil's work? God raised him from the dead, he's not done that kind of raising for anybody else. So that is pretty validating. Um, This gospel, Paul says in verse 5, is apprehended by faith, but it produces obedience. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. A faith-filled life will create a peculiar people. I've already talked about this, so I don't want to just keep repeating it. But in the New Testament, there is not this dichotomy between faith and works that has built up in modern Christianity. The scriptures assume if you're really obedient to God, you know, really obedient, it comes from faith. Now, you may have a certain self-righteousness and that sort of thing, but that's not what the scripture is talking about when it talks about obedience. Real obedience comes out of faith and faith produces obedience. It's like Paul will say in Galatians, faith works by love. And so as Paul kind of moves into the final stretch about what the gospel is, he lets you know it's not going to leave you an unchanged person. Do you, if you belong to Christ and have been converted, do you remember what the inside of your head was like before you were converted Some people who are raised as covenant children probably won't because they've been raised as disciples from the word go. But that wasn't my experience. I came to faith dramatically, you know. And I remember all the way I thought before, and it is a totally, totally different person. Now, I'm not perfectly free of that person, but it is truly, truly an alien landscape. There has been a transformation. Uh, I have been given thoughts of goodness rather than what I had before. I desire to do good rather than evil. Why do I do that? It's not not to, to earn God, but I can't do it. It's because I love God. It's because the grace of God in the gospel of God has redeemed one who totally didn't deserve it in any way. Allow me to assure you. Russ Westbrook did not deserve to be saved, but God saved them. God has delivered them. How can that not produce obedience? It's not going to produce it perfectly. We're promised perfection in the next life, but how can a delivered heart not be a grateful heart? The gospel produces obedience, and it is specifically for a group of people, as the summary comes to a close, it is for those who are, quote, the called of Jesus Christ. I don't want to make too much of this, because more will be made as as Romans goes along. But when the apostle considers the gospel, he cannot free himself from the thought of God's election, because the election of God is where salvation comes from. I said Russ Westbrook did not deserve to be saved. I was not speaking hyperbole. I really didn't. There are better people than me that are going to go to hell. Why is that? Was I smarter than them? And so the gospel just kind of caught. Was there anything in me that God said, you know, I really got to have that? The answer is no. No. The gospel goes out into all the world and yet the Bible clearly shows us that not all men come to faith why is it that some have faith and some don't well they are the called of God you don't deserve salvation there is nothing you can do that deserves it at all at all but if faith is given to you it is a free gift of God you are the called of Jesus Christ God has intended to call you from the foundation of the world. He intended to call you when he called you. Uh, This is not an accident, and this is the desire of God. And if you want to know why it's the desire of God, please go ask him, because I do not know. But God makes his decisions, and they will stand. That is quite a lot in a mere five verses.